All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for not only our children receiving a revelation of you today, but we pray for us, Lord, today also. In several places in your word, you tell us that peace and grace are multiplied unto us through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you are, we are to receive and seek a desire, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. And Father, today we seek to know you better. To leave here today not just knowing more about you, but knowing you better by experience. And so we pray, Father, and thank you that you've given to your church the Word of God, the living Word of God, and you've filled us with your Spirit and you've sent your Spirit here today because more than two of us are gathered here in your name, your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord. So breathe, may He breathe on this Word today. And may the anointing of your Spirit not just be on the written Word, but on the rhema Word, the Word as it's spoken through my mouth, over my tongue, Father, into the hearts and minds of people, Lord, all of us today. We need to see you more clearly. And we thank you in advance, Father, for you are well able to do that. And we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. And just to quickly remind where we are and what we're talking about, we're, we're talking about why we're here. Why is the church here? Why am I here? Why are you here? Why are we all here? Why, are, why didn't Jesus just take us home with us once we were born again? And the obvious answer is there's something He's left here for us to do. And we've seen that in Mark chapter 16, Jesus says to His disciples that what their commission was, what their instructions was, what their purpose was, was to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And we've talked about the different elements of that. I'm not going to go back over that. But our responsibility, the, the purpose for your life, what brings li- meaning to our life is to preach the gospel. And there are many different ways to do that, and we'll talk about some of those in in a few weeks as we go forward with this. But we're looking right now, what is the gospel? What is it we're supposed to preach? What is it we're supposed to declare? What is this all about? What is this message? Paul, in a number of places, refers to it as my gospel, the gospel, talks about another gospel, that if you hear another gospel, don't listen to it. So there is a gospel which is not just a doctrine, it's a message. And it is the core of what Jesus came to do for us. It's what changes our life. And we've seen in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that it's the power of God released unto salvation. Total deliverance. Not just qualification for heaven, but deliverance from every type of bondage that comes from sin because it all has its root back in sin. And we looked back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and we saw that when God created the earth, when He created man, He placed him in a garden, a very special place of delight. And God made him in His image and breathed into him His own life, His own breath, His own uh, uh, animation, His own being. He breathed it directly. Only being that God created did He do this to. Made him in His image. And that He was perfect openness before the Father. There was no sin. There was no sickness. No bondage. There was no darkness. Everything was just peaceful and joyful and light. And then Satan comes in, and we saw that the root of what Satan came in to do was to destroy this by getting them to take their life into their own hands, by beginning to take care of themselves, provide for themselves, protect themselves. And then when we looked and saw that the root of all sin is not what we do wrong, it's not the lying, the cheating, and all that, it's not that, that's the fruit of sin. The root of all sin is selfishness, self-centeredness, self-confidence, self provision, and ultimately self-willed. We sang about, I surrender all today. But that's a real battle to go through. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be very honest with you. I desire it, but there are pieces of me I don't want to surrender. 
And I appreciate what Pastor Kurt did because what we do then is we don't just give up and walk away. We ask God to strengthen us and to help us. Because what, all God needs us is to be willing and He'll do the work. You cannot surrender yourself. I had this image one day because I was praying this out one morning and the Lord showed me even Jesus couldn't nail Himself to the cross. You could nail your feet, but you can't nail your hands. He needed to surrender and put himself into the hands of those Roman soldiers in order to, but before that he'd put himself into the hands of his heavenly Father and trusted himself to do that. And he had to pray that out. Not my will, but your will be done. Three times in the garden. And so the root, we've seen the root of all sin is selfishness. And then we looked over and we saw in Romans chapter 5 where Paul makes this point that, that sin was in the world, but it was not imputed to man. The result of sin, the effects of sin, the, 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 uh, uh, it was in the world, which was death. And he says, and all sin from, from Adam to Moses. But they, didn't, they were not accountable to that sin, even though they had the results of that sin, because they didn't know what God required. They didn't know what they were doing wrong. They were just doing it wrong. And so God comes to Moses. It talks about that they did not sin from Adam to Moses. They did not sin in the likeness of Adam's sin. And we looked at what that sin was that Adam committed. Adam broke a known commandment. God told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat. Because if you eat it in dying, you will die, it says literally in the Hebrews. And, and of course, that's the very thing that Satan tempts him to do. But he's not tempting to eat the fruit. He's tempting him to take in his own hands the judgment of what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And God did not design man to handle that responsibility for managing good from evil, right from wrong on his own. So because God is our manufacturer, he's our creator, he knows what we're capable of handling, but Satan tempted them to think more than God did, to, to, to think that they knew better than God and to take this matter into their own hands, and that was the sin. And so from Adam until Moses, man's reaping the fruit of sin because the fruit of sin is death. But he can't do anything about it because he doesn't know what he's doing wrong, so he can't truly repent and receive forgiveness even though there was a system. So God sends Moses, and God calls Moses up on the mountain in Exodus 19 and tells him in three days, bring the children around the base of the mountain sanctify them for that three days so that because I'm going to come down on the mountain and reveal myself to them. Of course, God comes down on the mountain. They gather around the foot of the mountain and God comes down in all His power and all His majesty and there are many aspects of God and, and very, I'm not sure I can remember any place in the Bible where God reveals all of Himself but He'll reveal different facets of Himself, different sides of Himself, what He knows we need. And he came down to receive his awesome power, to reveal his awesome power. And there were thunders and lightnings on the top of this mountain. The whole ground shook. And as I said a few minutes ago, they were afraid. And they went and they hid and said, Moses, this is too much for us. You go find out what he says. Tell us and we will obey him. And of course, although they may have been sincere, they didn't. Because they thought they knew how they could handle right from wrong and didn't do what God said to do. If they'd done what God said to do, he would have trained them so that they would not have sinned, but they chose to handle it in their own judgment, which again was the temptation back in the garden, and that's what we do. We read the Word of God, we find out what God says, and then we decide for ourselves what it means and whether we're going to do it or not. And that's doing the same thing that Adam and Eve were tempted to do. 
So God comes down on Exodus 20 and God gives Moses these ten commandments. And the purpose of these is to give Moses and the children of Israel clear, simple instructions of what God requires. They're not the ten suggestions. They're not the ten rules. They're not the ten principles of, of, of blessing and prosperity. They're ten commandments. And the thing about a commandment is you only have two choices. Obey or disobey. There is no middle ground. And so what we like to do is we read a command or hear a command and then we try to go into our mind and analyze it, dissect it, think about it. And all those are ways of disobeying. Because they're postponing because obedience, the evidence of obedience is not in whether we agree with it or not, it's in what we do. It's in what we do. And, and I'm talking about this because the reason we're going through all of this is we're going to see when we go back into Romans that the purpose for which the law was given, the purpose for which these commandments were given was so that man could understand, including us, that we cannot do this in our own strength. Because there is inherent in our fallen flesh this element of pride that somehow I can add something to this. Whether it's my own in good intentions. You know, God, I know I'm not doing well. I know I'm struggling, but I mean well. And somehow we put confidence in, well, God, at least God's going to look at my meaning well, my good intentions, say, well, that's a good effort, child. I accept you. No, 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 no. Our best meaning, our best intentions don't cut it. Because these commandments are not talking about your, our intentions. It's talking about what we do. So God is giving these ten commandments. And by the way, in order to obey them completely, you have to do them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for your entire life and never miss once. Because as James makes clear, if you miss it once, you missed it all. Because we're going to look at and see today that what God is basically saying to them, if you want to be righteous by your own effort, then you have to be as righteous as I am. God's saying that. And He is these things 24 hours a day. He's always been these things. He's never wavered. All right, so I want to go over that because as we read through this and look today at what we're going to look at, it can be very disturbing because, the, but understand this, we're going to see next week, none of us have kept it. So if you hear today something, you say, oh my goodness, that's me, what am I going to do? Well, you're, that, that's what qualifies you for the good news of grace. We talked last week about if you, were, if you had uh, in, uh, signed up to, for the Air Force and you were in basic training and one of the courses was to teach you how to use a parachute, how to fold a parachute, uh, what a parachute is for, and you know, you'd sit in class and you say, oh, that's nice, that's good, well, I mean, that's important, you know, and you get into a plane, they're taking you up on your first flight, they get in the plane, they tell them, if something happens, this is where the parachutes are stored. You know, it's like we all do on a flight when the stewardess goes, you know, you know, we kind of pay, you know, we, nobody pays attention. Right. Because, you know, we've seen that before, we've heard that before, but what's that got to do with anything? Until the pilot says, we just lost our power. Okay? And now, what was it she said? How did you do this? Who do you put this on? Suddenly when that Air Force airman finds out that the power on the air, on, you know, they're going down, now that 
parachute takes on a whole different meaning to them because the purpose of that parachute was to save them in the event that plane lost its power and was going to go down. And I suggest to you that the gospel is an eternal parachute. Is an eternal parachute. And as long as we're flying along in life and think we're doing pretty well and we're doing better than we were before and don't understand that without this gospel we're all eternally lost, then we lose touch with why it's so good news to us. So that's what we've been looking at. We've gone through, uh, I'll read down through them. The first four of these have to do with our relationship with God. The, other, the remaining six, which we're going to cover today, have to do with our relationship with each other. And you may think, well, why is that important? Well, to God it is. So if it's important to God, then it must be, become important to us. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, the ha- out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. We talked about why that is the foundation of all of them. The revelation of, the, of this is who God is. Of all the Ten Commandments, of all the Gospel is who God is. And if you don't know that He's God, then there's the rest, the foundation of your, of your faith is very weak. You shall have, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, the likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the inequity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing mercy to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. It's a rest. Of the Lord your God, it's in this you will do no work, nor your son or your daughter, nor your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, your stranger within your gates. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord your God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it or sanctified that. We went back and looked last week because we saw that back in Genesis chapter 2 when it says, and the Lord finished and He rested, He hallowed or sanctified that day. So the, 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 the Sabbath was not established under the law. It was included in the law. And we talked last week, and I want to mention this because, because you can become legalistic about this and think, well, you know, we've got to do what they did and what the Jews did in the Old Testament. You know, we can't, we've got to stop and stand still. It's a principle. And it's the principle of rest. We talked last week, you've got to build into your life schedule. And you've got to build it in intentionally because if you try to find it, you won't find it. You've got to make it. Because God has ordained it. Some period, regular period of rest. And it does several things. Our body needs rest. Our soul needs rest. Our mind needs rest. In a time of rest, then God can speak to you more easily. But it's not just for that. There's a certain humbling that it forces us to accept. Because we're driven in a society that I've got to do this. We're working 24 hours a day even when we're home, sometimes on vacation. We've got cell phones and iPads and laptops and all this stuff. People have access to us. People walk around with phone things in their ear. Access to us sometimes 24 hours a day. And there's a time you've got to turn that off. And you know you can live. And I'm talking to me too. 
You've got to turn it off. You've got to shut it down. Because what it, tells that, what, what it tells yourself is they can live without me and I can live without them. You're not as necessary as you think you are. Because a hundred years from now, you won't be very important. Your job will go on without you. Life will go on without you. And so we need to humble ourselves and realize I'm not quite as important as I'd like to think I am. And taking a scheduled rest does that. You've got to decide between you and God what that means for you. Okay. Now we're going to go on and begin to look at the new ones, the new to us. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving to you. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which your Lord your God is giving you. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul refers to this by talking to children. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents because it's the first commandment with a promise. This is the first commandment that has tied to it a promise. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. We don't hear a lot about honor anymore. Some of you come from countries that where your culture is very much based on honor and respect of people that are older than you or have an authority over you. But we're living in a generation and we're certainly living in a land and a culture here where that's all but evaporated. The idea of honor is just, is, is, you know, is, is, a, is almost an empty term nowadays. But why is this important? Why is this, why is this in, in, our, in the commandments that God's giving to us? Because let's, and, and of course sometimes we have issues because we may have a father or mother or both that in our estimation, and maybe we're right, are not deserving of honor. It's wonderful if you've had parents that are just, that, you know, they, they, they're a Christian family or whether, even if they're not, they're very they're loving and respectful and they pour good things into you and they provide what you need. But in our society today, so many people have not been raised in that kind of a family and so many people today don't even have both a father. They have a father and mother, but they don't have them in their lives or they're not living with them or maybe they wish they weren't because they've been abusive. Honor your father and mother. What, why, is, why would God include that? If you've only got ten commandments, why would that be one of these commandments? Well, I believe it goes back to what your father and mother did for you. They provided you with life. I said they provided you with life. I hope you understand that. <laughs> Your physical life, you owe to your father and mother. Now, many of you, your parents wanted you. But there's, I'm sure in this room today, parents, children, who have, some of you whose parents didn't particularly want you. But they still gave you life. Life is a very sacred thing to God because it's His creation. And there's something about respecting those to whom, from whom that life came. They gave you life, and therefore God requires us to honor them. Now let's talk about what honor is. Honor is, first of all, above everything, is an attitude of the heart. It's not so much something you do, it's the attitude towards them. And you may, again, have parents that you look at them and say, boy, they're deserving of anything but honor. They 
abused me, they abandoned me, they did this, but they did give you life. And without them, you would not exist. And so for that fact alone, if there's nothing else, you can decide, because it's an act of your will. Honor is a choice that we make in our will. Our, our, the will is down inside of us to have an attitude towards them of honor, of valuing. What does honor mean? It means to value, to treasure, to respect. And so it starts with an attitude of the heart because people, what, what, what do I have to do to honor my parents? Well, if you have to ask the question, probably you're not honoring them because it starts with an attitude of your heart. If you begin to say, and so what do I do? Suppose I have parents that were abusive or, or weren't there. Go to God and ask Him to show you. Say, I want to, I want to obey your commandment. I want to honor my parents. Show me, show me something in there. And you know, I found in life, and we have challenging relationships with somebody, if you choose to find something in there worth respecting, you'll find something. It's one of the th- advice I give to married couples if they're struggling with each other, because most of the time, the reason they're struggling with each other is they formed a wrong image. When they fell in love and got married, they had the right image. But now the very things that they thought were so cute and funny about them are the very things that annoy them the most. Oh, that hit a nerve. <laughs> are the very things that annoy them the most. So how do, what do you do? Because if your image of somebody is, well, they're a nag or they're never home, they're not da-da-da-da-da, the image you have is like putting on sunglasses that help you see only certain things. I've told you I have Polaroid sunglasses, and what they do is they only allow light waves in that go in a certain direction. I don't remember whether it's vertical or horizontal. But they, they only allow certain light waves in. And the attitude you have towards somebody determines what you're willing to see and what you're not willing to see. So you can change that attitude by changing what you choose to see. So one of the counsels I give is to, if you're having strains in your relationship, is to make a list of your spouse's ten best qualities. Don't show it to them. Just make a list, and then every day thank God. Say, I can't find ten. Well, start with what you can find. <laughs> and what you'll find is as, you, as, you, as you're thankful to God for those you can find, you may begin to notice some more, because it changes the glasses you're putting on with which you see them. Well, that same can be true of parents. If you just choose, wait a minute, my life came from them. I know they had all kinds of issues. And it's amazing, you begin to look at them in a different light because I had to go through that with my own father. And then once I began to do that, God began to open my eyes to see how he was raised. And then I saw how his parents were raised. And then I began to realize my father gave me the very best he could. With the way he was raised and what he went through, he gave, and that totally changed how I saw him. But that only happened because I began to pray about it. I began to pray about it. So honor your father and mother the first commandment with a promise. God's promise, long life attached to it. That's an incentive right there. The other thing about this that's important is because one of the key issues with God, this is why we teach a course on this here, is authority. Because we'll sing songs like we did today and tears come down our cheeks. I surrender all. Oh God, I'm yours. I'm completely yours. And then God puts, God puts somebody in our life that has authority and says, well, I'm not going to listen to them. Who do they think they are? Well, wait a minute. If God put them there, then His authority has been given to them. 
And so how we respond to human authority is a direct insight as to how we respond to God's authority. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. You can't be submissive to God and not submissive to the authorities that God puts in your life. And that includes father and mother. So that having somebody over you, you have to respect and honor is part of God's way of breaking through our pride. And it's an indication of our respect and honor for God. Can we honor them just because our Father in Heaven says to honor them? That ought to be, because remember these are commandments, not just principles that have a blessing attached to them. All right, let's go on. Verse 13. Thou shalt not murder. That's straightforward enough. It's amazing how people take this and <clears throat> make things out of it that it's not. There, there's people out there that believe that, that God has commanded us to never kill. Therefore, I can't kill because God has commanded us not to kill. It's not what it says. I know the King, original King James, or the, the, the old King James says, Thou shalt not kill. But the word in the Hebrew means to intentionally kill. Murder is what the better translations say. And there's a difference between murder and killing. Murder, killing includes murder, but murder is a legal killing. Illegal killing, excuse me. Murder is an illegal killing. There are times when God commanded in the Old Testament for them to stone people to death. That was a legal killing. And God commanded it. Thou shalt not murder. Again, the word means premeditated taking of a life illegally. Now, we're going to look now, we'll come back here, but we're going to go over to Matthew chapter 5, because Jesus takes these commandments and brings them to another level. Because in the Old Testament, these commandments were simply outward actions. And you could tell whether anybody was doing these or not. You could tell if somebody murdered somebody, it was obvious. You could tell if somebody was not honoring their parents. You could tell if somebody was doing any of the others that we're going to get to. But Jesus, preparing them for why He had come, began to take these commandments and bring them down to a different, more challenging level. And we're going to look at some of them from that perspective. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So the law is not gone. It's fulfilled. And I believe it means that in several ways, but one of the most important is there's no way you and I could fulfill it. But Jesus came to fulfill it. So that in the gospel, being in Christ, it's fulfilled in us also. Because Jesus is the only one human being that ever walked on the earth that perfectly kept these commandments all the time. But He's going to show us here what God expects of them. Verse 18, Assuredly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, pass away not one jot or one tittle, that's those are the smallest parts, that's the dot of an I or the crossing of a T, will by any means pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
This is verse 20, what I wanted you to see. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying here that what these commandments are really reaching is something deeper than just our outward behavior. Because the Pharisees on the outside kept these literally religiously. But Jesus is saying when God evaluates you, He's not going to look just on what you do outwardly. He's going to look at a much deeper level. So we're looking, we're talking about thou shalt not murder. Verse 21. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. That's what you've heard. That's what the commandment said. Verse 22. But I say to you, Whoever is angry at his brother without cause... Now, there's some translations leave without cause out there. But whoever is angry at his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Racha, that means empty-headed, gives him an insult, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against him that He has something against you. If you're going to worship, you're going to come into the presence of God. We're talking about these last six commandments. The first four had to do with your relationship with God. The Lord God, He is the only true God. He is my God, our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. And we we have no other gods before Him. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not idolatry. You shall not worship some image or make some image that represents Him. You shall not take His name in vain. Those have to do with worshiping God, focused on God. But these have to do with our relationship with each other. And now he's saying, before you come to worship me, you've got to make sure things are right with your brother. See, we want to say, well, that can't be as important. Obviously, where God is is the most important thing. But God's saying, no, no, what I'm telling you is your relationship with each other is as important as it is with me. In fact, you can't really come and be open to worship me if you don't have things right with each other. So wait a minute, it's talking about murder. We're not, we're not, we're talking about murder, not forgiveness and unforgiveness. Oh, let's see what Jesus says here. Again, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and hand you over to the officer and he throws you in prison. And assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you pay the last penalty. He's talking about forgiveness. When we're angry, now we're human, we have flesh, and somebody cuts you off on your way to church to worship God. <laughs> and you're late because you've dawdled around or slept late, and now you're under pressure, and some person you don't know cuts you off on the exit ramp, and you want to express yourself with, to them, and your anger rises up, it's what do you do with that? What do you do with that? My idea of a car is that ought to get me where I want to go instantly. And when somebody slows me down, I find my flesh gets stirred up. I know I'm the only one in here that does that. (laughs) And I'm much better than I used to be. 
And I just, you know, and all of a sudden it dawned on me one day, how selfish can you get? This person, I don't know why they're going slow in front of me. This person that's decided to drive five, ten miles an hour under the speed limit on my way to church to come and worship God, and I'm running late because I didn't do what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it, and now this person is slowing me down and in my way, and I'm going to get angry at them. All of a sudden, God opened my eyes one day to see how selfish that is, as if the whole road should be organized around my schedule. And nobody else has any plans to go anywhere, so they all have to get out of my way because part the sea because John wants to, needs to get the church on. And I had to repent. So here's what I've learned to do. I pray for them. And not just that God move them along. <laughs> get them out of the way. <laughs> Call fire down out of them. You know. No, Father, forgive me for being angry. Well, I'm, I'm angry at them. I don't even know them. They're in my way. What we're going to see here, here's an insight. The root of why each one of these is sin is because the root of each one is me. Somebody's done something to me. Somebody, something, somebody has something I want or I ought to have. It's all rooted around me, which is the root of all sin. And so I just start repenting. Does God forgive me? Does it still flare up? Oh, yeah. But I try to catch it. And my wife's good at helping me. But I try to catch it. <laughs> and say, Lord, forgive me. They have every much as a right on this road, as I do. And I'm just going to put whether I get there on time in your hands and not be anxious about it. And I'm going to pray for that person. Father, bless them. I don't know why they're going slow. I don't know why they're doing... We had people coming. We were coming back from a little prayer retreat we were on yesterday. And people, I'm going the speed limit. People are flying by me. And I want to sit there and judge them. Oh, God, get them! <laughs> and I said, Lord, protect them and the people that are around them. One of them did get pulled over and I did kind of smile as we went by. <laughs> I, I did enjoy that a little bit, but <clears throat> I'm still growing. The point here is what he's talking about in each one of these is the inner attitudes of our heart. The inner If we hate somebody. See, we're going to get angry at people. And the Bible says in Ephesians, you know, be angry but sin not. So it's not sin to be angry. It's what do you do with it. He says, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let it go on. And that's a good way to do it, you know, have a deadline. If, and we need to be quick to forgive people. Because the principle here is God's forgiven us. God's quick to forgive us. And then we turn around and we hold things against each other. So in God's commandment, in God's highs, when we hold things against one another, that's as if we're committing murder in his eyes. Okay. Now, we'll come back here, so you want to keep something there. We'll go back now to Exodus 20. Oh, this is a good one. Verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Uh-oh. Let's move on. No, you shall not <laughs> commit adultery. 
What is adultery in God's eyes? It is the breaking of a covenant that God ordained. In Genesis chapter 2, when God took the woman out of Adam and presented her to him, and he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God then said, from this point on, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. When I've taught blood covenant before here, and I'll teach it again at some point, a covenant, the essence of a covenant is it's the joining together two separate tribes, two separate families, two separate people, two separate individuals, and they're now joined together and become one. So the essence of a covenant is two have become one. So that everything that, they bo- that each of them had individually, they now have together. Assets, liabilities. And what we talked about several months, a month or so ago when we t- I taught on communion, is the essence of communion is the, cel- is the celebration of a covenant that God entered into with Christ on our behalf. And when you come to Christ, you partake of that covenant that God entered into with His Son, and it was cut on the cross. And so, in the same way, a marriage, in God's eyes, is a covenant, a joining together, where the two become one flesh. A man shall leave his father and mother. And, and, and what happens then is that means that they have pledged that for their basic emotional needs, for their basic physical needs, they have pledged that they will not look to anyone else except their covenant partner. And so adultery is when a man or a woman chooses to receive those physical needs satisfied from someone other than their covenant partner, and that is the breaking of a covenant. So it's not just bad behavior in God's eyes. It is the breaking of a covenant. Let's look, again, we'll come back here. Let's look in Malachi chapter 2. You go to Matthew and go left. There is more in Malachi other than tithing. A lot more in Malachi other than tithing. God's talking to hear through the prophet Malachi to the children of Israel about why he is upset at them. Verse 14, he says, You say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Because God seeks, he seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Now he's going to go on and talk about divorce. I don't want to talk about that today. I don't want to get into divorce. What I want to talk about is what, a, what the commandment is and why that commandment is there. Thou shalt not commit adultery because in God's eyes it's breaking a covenant. And covenants are sacred to God. All right. Say, so, well, I haven't done that. Well, let's go over to Matthew chapter 5 again. Well, before we do that, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside of his body, but he who commits sexual immorality, immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And Paul's saying the same thing there. Don't you know that if you go out and commit fornication with somebody, that you're taking a body that belongs to the Holy Spirit and you're joining that to some other person that you're not in covenant with. So the whole idea of adultery in God's eyes, the whole idea of marriage in God's eyes, it is a physical, emotional, and spiritual covenant. Okay, now let's go to Matthew chapter 5 and see what Jesus says about this. Verse 27. You have heard it said that of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. <laughs> if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body should be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable to you that your members perish than your whole body should be cast into hell. In those last two verses, he's talking about we need to be extreme with ourselves. We're very patient with other people, with ourselves, and very quick to judge other people. And Jesus is saying, you need to turn that around. But he's talking here about this same thing. Whereas murder isn't just something you do on the outside, it's something you do in your heart towards people. In the same way, he's saying, you can commit this sin of adultery sitting in your living room with your spouse. Now, he's not saying if your eye just happens to see something, because it's the same way with thoughts. You cannot control the thoughts that come to your mind. But we're learning, and we're going to learn in Wednesday nights in, in Renewing the Mind, but you can control what you do with them. You can't always control what you see and you can't always control that first thought you get. But if you hold on to that thought and you begin to entertain that thought and then you begin to enjoy that thought, Jesus is saying, that's as if you went out and do it. Say, oh, okay, well then I might as well go out and do it. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Remember, we're looking at this. Jesus is telling us the standard of the of the covenants is not just what you do outwardly, it's what you do inwardly. Because the purpose of this is for us to see how much we need a Savior. Okay. We're going to come back here, so keep something here. Let's go back to Exodus 20. We're moving through these because I don't... We could spend a year on this. Verse 15. You shall not steal... That's really simple. We don't need to look at a lot of scriptures. That's taking something that doesn't belong to you. Say, well, nobody's looking. It's not significant. I know it's copyrighted. I understand it's copyrighted, but everybody's doing it. What's the harm? 
thou shalt not steal. To copy something and give to somebody else something that's copyrighted is to steal. But it's just a small thing. But see, that's man handling for himself right from wrong, good from evil. Yeah, I know it's technically stealing, but, you know, in the scope of things, it really can't mean that. That's when I become my own judge. That's quieter here about this than, than adultery. <laughs> we'll go back and talk about adultery again. Let's go on to the next one. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's lying. That's lying. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. See, what Jesus was doing in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, He was basically going through these commandments and telling you from the Father's perspective what He requires in them. It's not just your outward deeds. It's inward things, what's going on on the inside. Because the Pharisees were very righteous on the outside, but inside, they stinketh. 33, verse 33. Again you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not bear, swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Well, that's changed nowadays. We can do that, but... But here's the point, verse 37. Therefore let your yes be yes, and no be no, for whatever is more of that is from the evil one. What's he talking about there? What had developed is the practice of, of saying, giving our word, but not fully meaning it. So therefore, if I really meant it, I had to swear an oath. Because if I swore an oath by, and to swear, you know, by... By my mother's grave is something we might use today. But there was by Jerusalem or by my head, by something that was respectable to me, swear an oath by that, then I really meant it. Which Jesus is saying here, that means the rest of the time you didn't. Well, why is that important? This is one of the most important ones. Because all of these we're going to see in a minute reflect God's character. God does not murder. God does not break His covenant with us. God does not steal from us. He receives offerings. He tells us why it's blessed to give. But He doesn't steal from us. God does not lie. In fact, the Bible says He cannot lie. God's Word is truth. And the problem that most of us have with faith is we have trouble believing God really means exactly what He says. And the reason we have trouble believing God means exactly what He says is we, don't, we know we don't mean exactly what He says. And people around us don't mean exactly what they say. And so we have to, in our own mind, go through this analysis do they really mean it or don't they really mean it? 
and other people have to do it with us, then Jesus is saying, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, only say what you mean and then do what you say. Because when we do anything else, we're not being like our Father who's in heaven. And the effect is we water Him down. We talked last week about taking the Lord's name in vain. And that's not just swearing, but it's just using it casually. And one of the spiritual ways of doing it is just tagging it on the end of prayer. In, the, in, in Jesus' name, amen. Without thinking about that. And the problem then is when we get in trouble and we want to pray and call on His name, in our mind we can't, it can't tell the difference between whether we really reverence Him or it's just something tagged onto the end of something. We've done that to ourselves. And the same is true with our word. Because when, we are, when our word is not good, we know that more than anybody else does. And it waters down in our own mind subconsciously the authority of God's word in our life. Now remember, Jesus is doing this so that we would understand why we need a Savior. So if you're sitting there saying, oh my goodness, that applies to me, good, it should, it applies to all of us. So don't leave here condemned. Leave here realizing this is what it would be like if Jesus never came. This is what God would hold us to if Jesus never came. This is what His righteousness is like. Okay. John, 1 John 1, 7, don't turn there, but it says if we walk in the light, that's the truth, as He is in the light, the truth. Then we have fellowship with one another. We can have relationship with each other. If we're not walking in truth, if we don't speak truth, how can we have really relationship with each other? Because relationship is based on trust. In, Rome, in Ephesians chapter 4, when it talks in verse 15 and 16 about the church maturing and growing, it says, speaking the truth, ah, in love. Speaking the truth to one another in love is how the church, the body of Christ, grows. This is God's character. He is His Word. Jesus is the Word of God. He did not need to swear by something higher than Himself because God only speaks truth. Imagine if we didn't know whether we could trust God. So today He means it, but tomorrow He's in a different mood. Imagine how uncertain things. We, have, we struggle enough with it is when He does tell the truth, when He does can't lie, how much more would it be if He played games with us? And the reason, again, we have trouble with this is because we do this with ourselves more than anybody and with one another. And we could spend a long time there, but we're not going to. Let's go to Colossians. Let's go to uh, the, the last one, which is, verse t- which is the last one, Thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. What is to covet? It's to, it's to desire. It's to be envious. Because it can apply not just to your neighbor's wife or servant. It can be your, to the blessing that's on somebody's life. It can be to the things that they have. Say, how did they get a new car? I've been believing God for a car longer than they have. And look how easily they get one. Or look, that you know... This person's gotten promoted in job and I should have been promoted. That's coveting. That's coveting. And we're not going to turn there, but Colossians 3.5 says that covetousness is idolatry. 
It's putting something above God. And so when we envy, when we're covetous, when we long for... Notice each of these is selfish. Murder is getting back at somebody. It's retribution. Adultery is selfishness. It's for my benefit. Stealing is because I want something that I think I'm entitled to. Lying is always to protect myself. It's always because I don't want to deal in truth because I want to present myself in the best light or I want to explain why I did this and that's always based on self. And coveting is clearly based on self. Let's go to Romans chapter 13 and we'll end today there. Verse 8. Owe no man anything except to love one another. Now, stop there a second. Some people have taken that and pushed it to mean it's never, it's never right to be in debt. And this is not really what he's talking about here. If that's your conviction, then go for it. Go for it. It's wrong to borrow money you can't afford to repay. That's in essence stealing. If you know ahead of time, you can't. But to owe no man anything, what he's talking about here is owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Jesus broke everything down to two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, with all mind, with all thy strength. And the second one is likened that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. Owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there are any other commandments, they're all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Stop there a second. That's what I'm talking about. The root of all sin is self. And if I walk in love towards you and esteem you more highly than myself, which is what Philippians 2 says, if I do that, then I'm going not going to murder, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm not going to covet what you have. I'm here to bless you and to be of benefit to you instead of seeing what I can get back from you or you're in my way while I'm trying to get to church on time. Your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. I want to tell you a story that kind of brings us out. And it, it, it 
It confronted me when I heard this the first time. As you know, my wife and I went to Rama Bible Training Center. Pastor Ray did, Monica Liberty did, and maybe some others here that did. And the founder of that school was Kenneth E. Hagan, known to most people as an apostle of faith. But those who knew him would tell you even more than a man who walked in faith, this was a man who walked in love. And this was one of his cardinal scriptures. I remember him telling a story about a time when he was traveling on the road in the beginning of his ministry, traveling ministry, and where he would travel and stay in the homes of, of pastors. And he arrived in this pastor's house and went to bed that night and got up in the morning and expected them to have something out to eat. There was nothing. They weren't even there. Noontime comes. Nothing there. Evening comes and they're getting ready to go to the service. No mention of food. So they get rest. They go to the service and come back and say, well, I guess we're going to eat after the service. Pastor says good night, goes to bed. They go to bed. There's no, they haven't eaten anything all day. He says, well, I fasted today. Gets up the next morning. He said, maybe they forgot about it. Same thing all over again. Finally, a little before supper time, he goes to the refrigerator and all he can find is two hot dogs. And, or a hot dog. And he cuts it up and shares it with his wife. Blessed it. And then he's getting a little upset. He says, you know what? Because this was part of a denomination. He says, I need to go call the, the district director. This is just not right. If he's doing this to me, he's doing it to somebody else. And he got on the, phone, on the car to go to a phone. I guess he went out to the phone in the house. And then he comes back in the room and his wife said, did you, tell, did you call? No, I couldn't do it. What do you mean you couldn't do it? He's not treated us well. He says, if I do this, if I call and turn him in on this, they're going to they're gonna take his papers from him. This is going to come out eventually anyway, but I don't want to be the one that is the cause of his downfall. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus allowed them to beat him, insult him, spit on him, scourge him, nail him to a cross. Jesus took their insults. He took all of that and our sin. Why? Because he loved us more than he loved himself. And he told his disciples, go do likewise. Don't love people, you know, and I wasn't, didn't feel as if I received the love I needed. And I remember when he got married, my biggest insecurity was, I don't know if I could love her for, for this long. Well, Wednesday, it's 48 years. Because God taught me a principle. Through to him and her. God taught me a principle. Love is not an emotion. Love is a decision. It's an act of your will. God would not, could not be fair if he commanded us to have an emotion. But he commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. And it's a commandment, therefore we can do it. John says his commandments are not grievous. They're possible. They're not that hard. What's hard on is on our flesh. And so what we're going to begin to see is this is what the standard is God has set for us. His commandments all boil down to this. You shall love me 
and you shall love one another to the same degree that I've loved you. Did I forgive you when you messed up? Then you need to forgive one another. Did I steal things from you? No, I blessed you and gave to you. That's why Jesus said, if somebody wants to take something from you, give it to him. You look at all those commandments and say, turn the other cheek. I used to wonder, what's that really about? I mean, you're really talking about that? You know, all of those are about not retaliating. They're not standing up for myself and striking back. Turn the other cheek just means I'm not going to get back at you for what you did for me. I'm going to still be open and tender and sensitive to you no matter what you do to me. Because that's what God's done with us, isn't it? Isn't that what God's done with us? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, with all thy soul. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the laws and the commandments. And now what we're going to be to look at is if that's the standard that we love one another, because I didn't read it, but if we went on further in Matthew chapter seven, 5, Jesus says, and if you think you're doing all that, be perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. All God's held up here is a standard of Himself. And we're going to find out, if you haven't figured it already, you can't keep that up all the time on your own. We can do pretty well for a little bit of time, but we can't do it all the time under every circumstance unless God comes into us and does something in us. And that's what we'll begin to look at next week. That's what the good news is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today. We thank You today that as we read through Your commandments and we read through what You require of us, we thank You that we can know that in coming up, there's the good news that although this is what You require of us, that You sent Jesus to pay for all the ways inside of us that we fall short. All those times that we've resented somebody and hated somebody and didn't just deal with it right away. All the times we've coveted or wanted something somebody had or even maybe had impure thoughts in our mind that we dwelled upon and we struggle with that, Lord. We thank you that the good news is Jesus has paid for that. And therefore, all we need to do is to come to him to receive the mercy and grace that is so richly poured out upon us in Christ Jesus. And for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name.